Please rise. Court is now in session. All rise. All rise. Is it legal too? A regular look at the legal system and you, a special production of the Missouri Bar. I'm Bob Pretty. And I'm Farrah Fight. We're going to be voting soon, so we thought we'd talk about election laws. There have been some changes recently, and not so recently, so it's time for a little bit of an update. We've invited a couple of lawyers with backgrounds in campaign and election issues to explore this issue with us today. One is Steve Davis, who specializes in election litigation involving high-profile political campaigns and organizations. He is with True North Law, LLC, of St. Louis. The firm deals with issues such as redistricting, ballot access challenges, recounts, and post-election challenges. He oversaw all election law-related issues in the state for the Mitt Romney campaign in 2012. Our other guest is Chuck Hatfield with Stinson LLP. He's been the lead counsel before the Missouri Supreme Court on issues such as campaign finance and ethics. He also has represented a lot of clients in the state's initiative petition process in which changes in state law are sought. He's litigated several petition and signature challenges. So, gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thank you for having us. Good to be here. Well, let's dispense with a hot-button issue right off the top. Is there any reason Missourians should feel any uncertainty about the upcoming elections in Missouri? Well, I don't think so. You know, Missouri elections have a long history of being well-run. I think one of the strengths of the Missouri election system is actually that it is dispersed widely. In other words, there are a lot of people in charge of the election. And so, you know, some states have a more centralized system where there's one statewide official who's sort of in charge of the whole thing. And I think it's perhaps natural to be a little suspicious of that. Um, One of the good things about the Missouri system is your local county clerk and the judges in your county are involved in that. There are judges that are involved as well. Stephen, you'll take that, right? Uh, Sure. (laughs) No, I think uh, we've had a good run of it, uh, especially for the past couple decades. In 2000, we had some issues, some a little bit of rocky going, but uh, we have worked together in a good way and uh, taken issues to judges when necessary, and uh, the judges have always been standing by and have been available to us when needed. So I threw you the wrong pitch. (laughs) So when you go to vote in your county, there are what's called election judges, and there's one Democrat and one Republican, and there are, you know, bipartisan teams that help count your ballots Those ballots are then reviewed again, if necessary, at the Secretary of State's office. So there are a lot of people involved in this process, and it's hard to manipulate because of how many people there are and how we've set the system up. Right, and your larger counties have boards of election, and there's a director for each party. And they, my experience is that they have always worked well together and been able to take any issues to either one of those directors, and they've been resolved. And They oversee, as Chuck mentioned, they oversee everything in a bipartisan manner where you have one election judge who's Republican, one Democrat. Plus, they're your neighbors. They're people you know. When you go to the polling place, chances are they're going to know you before you have to give your identification. Certainly true in rural areas. Not not necessarily as true in some of the larger jurisdictions, but yeah, that's right. I mean, these are just people trying to do their job. They're not... Our experience has been, I think, that these these are not political positions. These are nonpartisan folks who are just trying to get the vote counted. Right, and I hope more people would volunteer to do that. But, you know, you go to the polls every election, you see the same, a lot of the same folks there running the election, and just grateful for all that they do, and it's a long day for them. And they're not paid very well. (laughs) No. If you want to volunteer 
do you have to go through training or certification to become an election judge? Yes, there is training, and uh, the election authority in your county will be all too happy to learn of your interest. And it's very easy to sign up, and they do provide training for you. And if if and when you attend a training, uh, you get part of your pay as part of that, and then the rest of it when you actually serve during the election. So I noticed that most of the election judges that I see now when I go to vote, and even when I was younger, tend to be retired Missourians. Is there anything in the law that requires or says that, you know, I know you can get time off to go vote, but is your employer supposed to give you time off to also be an election judge? No. (laughs) No, uh, and we've had employees at our firm that have served as election judges, and we're all too happy, of course, to let them take that time. But no, they don't have to let you off, but it's always a good Good idea to serve. You know, there's a growing effort to allow that. So, you know, I'm at a I'm at a fairly large Missouri law firm, and it's easier for large employers. But we recently declared uh, election day as a day off, just just for our employees. So they'll have the entire day when they can participate in the election process, and we're encouraging them to go volunteer. And I think that's a little bit of a trend that's starting to happen now where larger employers that can afford to do it will allow people to do that. Would it help to have a law that says that people who want to be judges have to have a paid day off from their employers to do this? Well, I think it would certainly help get it, get more volunteers. Mm-hmm. And to increase the pay a little bit. Yeah. Hurt either. How much are they? How much are judges paid? I have no idea. Yeah. Oh, I think it's, it's, it's less than living wage. I think it's a couple hundred bucks. Yeah. I don't think they do it for the money. Yes, yeah. it's a rule. <laughs> Let's go to the very beginning of voting. I know we've now talked about the people that you see when you go to vote, but first off, how do you even get registered to vote? I know that may seem like a simple question, but each time you move, don't you need to update your registration or re-register? Can you talk us through what it takes, like what ID you need to have in order to become a registered voter in the state of Missouri? So recent laws have tried to make it easier for people to register to vote after the 2000 election. Congress passed a couple different very important laws, uh, one being the Help America Vote Act, the other the National Registration Voter Act. And with that, we got our uh, motor voter laws. So in many states, if not all, including Missouri, when you apply for a driver's license, they also ask you if you're are interested in registering to vote. So it's, uh, I think, pretty simple. Just need to provide proof of where you live and you can register to vote. The information when you go to apply for your driver's license, is that more than what you actually need to register to vote or is it the same types of information? You mentioned proof of where you live. Yeah, it should be about the same kind of information. With the Real ID Act, I renewed my driver's license recently and that was uh, kind of a hassle providing your birth certificate. You don't need that to register to vote, but you do need some proof of identity and proof of residency. And folks can register to vote in a lot of places. Libraries have voter registration. There are, as we get closer to elections, there will be more opportunities to register to vote. You can always register to vote at your local election authority, whatever that might be, usually your county clerk if you're in rural Missouri, but they're pretty easy to register. And I believe you can still register by mail. HAVA, the Help America Vote Act, did require some proof of identification when you reg- when you do not register to vote in person so that they can verify your identity, but that can be 
I think, a utility bill when you register to vote by mail. Do you have to register by party? Well, not in Missouri yet. Starting January 1st of 2023, you do have to declare whether you are Republican. Well, you, you, you have to declare what party you are registering for or whether you are it's un, unclassified or forget. We hear, like I was going to say in the news, they usually say undecided voters, but I'm guessing that's not yes, it's, the it's, same terminology for this say, case. A lot of states say independent, but the Missouri law has the, a word. The Missouri law is different. Undeclared, I think, is undeclared. the word. Undeclared. And if you fail to declare which party you're registering with, the election authority will automatically put undeclared as your registration. So that starts this coming January. The law says you can change your registration at any time, even on election day, but you do have to submit some kind of form in writing. I was going to say... At, I haven't looked at that, but you can still vote in either primary, though. Is that right? Or are you locked in? The statute does not address whether the primaries are closed. Right. So I would assume, even though you have declared for one party or the other, you could vote in the other party's primary, unless the legislature comes back and adds that. Otherwise, if you're an undeclared voter... You can still you would still be able to vote in either one. I assume so. Yes, yes uh, sure. if I'm a re Republican voter, I could vote Democrat or the nonpartisan, the, the federal only yeah. uh, ballot. But yeah, that's for the legislature to address if it wants to. the The law was silent on whether the primary primaries are closed or not. So that seems like a significant change because for at least in my lifetime of voting, I know that you walk in on primary day and they ask you what ballot you would like. So do we have any idea what the intention was behind this? I don't personally know what the intention was. I, I would speculate that because in the past couple of elections, or at least uh, one coming to mind is the Claire McCaskill Senate election versus Todd Aiken, where there was some uh, talk about encouraging Democrats to vote in the Republican primary for Todd Aiken. That I, I assume from that there's been a move among Republicans who are in the majority in Jeff City to want to close primaries, but I don't know that. So I live in a county where my local officials are almost always Republican. One party almost ticket, always, yeah. Almost always that's decided in the primary. So, well, regularly in a presidential year, maybe I'll take a Democrat ballot because I want to vote in that primary. And then in a non-presidential year, I'll take a Republican primary ballot because I want to make sure and vote for my local officials. So, and in fact, I think in recent years, you know, I've always voted in a Republican primary, even though I tend to vote for Democrats in a general. So it, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with it because I think people generally would prefer to be able to switch back and forth, you know, as they vote. You know, I would just add, it's, it's really interesting to me to watch. Bob, you'll remember back in the day, right, we had straight ticket voting. Mm -hmm. You used to be able to just go in and push a Republican at the top. And then I will say, I don't think the Republicans liked that because there were a lot of Democrat votes that were done that way. So the Republicans got rid of that. And we sort of got rid of this idea of, you know, are you a Democrat or Republican at the polling place? But now I think the point of this new law is to help identify who are our voters. Mm -hmm. You know, we want to know... Which of these people are Republicans? Which of these people are Democrats so that we can get the vote out? And so, you know, somebody once said, where you stand depends on where you sit. I think this idea of helping identify the voters of the party in power is starting to come back into vogue a little bit. Well, as a reporter, it seems to me it would be a great news story 
after an election for me to be able to say X number of Republicans took a Democratic ticket this time or yeah. vice versa, because that would indicate a strategy that's involved here or something like that that we just talked about with the McCaskill election. So here's another really interesting issue that has come up lately, which is, do they keep track of which ballot you take mm-hmm. that, that your listeners might be interested in? Most counties do not. You, you walk in and you say, I'd like a Republican ballot, and they hand it to you. They don't record which one you took. And so you would know how many people took the ballot, but you wouldn't know, you know which were which. Now, there are apparently some counties where they're recording that, and certainly the Democrat and Republicans have a right to have what's called a watcher who would stand there and say, Bob took this kind of ballot uh, and make a list. But I've heard a lot of people asking about that. You know, is there some way for my neighbors to know which party ballot I took? And the answer, Steve can, Stephen can weigh in, the answer ought to be no. They, they won't know which, which ballot you took, although I'm not sure it's consistent. Right, I think most folks would uh, not like the idea of their neighbors knowing yeah. what ballot they took. I was right. going to say my first voting experience, I walked in, it was a primary election, and my dad had voted right before me, and the election judge said, oh, your dad said that you should take this, <laughs> right? ballot, not the other one. And I was like, wait, I thought I was supposed to get to pick. So just had to share that story because right? yeah. I think it would feel strange to me knowing, hey, I don't get to pick, or I've locked myself in because I know for many of us, we change perspectives and points of view throughout the course of our life. But, you know, somebody recording what ballot I took might explain a lot of the junk mail that I got. Just <laughs> Very much so. Sense. Very yeah. much so. Yeah. What, what happens if I move and I don't change my address? So a couple things. Under, you know, Stephen mentioned the federal reforms that took place in 2000. I don't know if Stephen mentioned this, but that was a result of Bush versus Gore. Those of us who remember that, uh, remember that there was, I think, pretty much bipartisan consensus that we needed some general standards. And so standardizing how we treat voters at some level, came to pass through congressional enactments. One of those, uh, and I can't remember which bill it is, Stephen's better at this than I am, but says that if you move within your own county, you're still registered to vote and you're still eligible to vote. Um, they'll want to update your address. You know, when you go in, you'll need to show some proof of where you are now, but you can still vote. Now, if you move across county lines or into a different local election authority, uh, as they say, you'll need to update your registration in the county where you move. And a lot of people move, of course, and don't change their voter registration. Guilty of that one time, at least. <laughs> so what the election authority does is every election, you may have noticed, they send you a voter ID card or some kind of uh, card in the mail, some kind of information or, or sample ballot. And when they send that to you, if you're no longer there and that mail gets returned to the election authority, then they keep track of that. And once that happens two or three times, then they may be required, I'm not sure, to take your name off or put you on the inactive voter list. When you mentioned earlier in the law, if I've moved to another neighborhood, but I'm still in the same community, maybe even still going to the same polling place, and I go in and my address has changed, I get to vote. Is that a provisional ballot or is that a, I'm in, it's all good? You're in. So you show... Show proof of, of address within the jurisdiction. So I moved it down the street, more common than I realized. But I moved right down the street. Here's my ID. You're in. You're, you're I moved down the street last year and did that well, exact thing with voting. So yeah. excellent. Your vote counts. <laughs> Yay. But, but, but if you're within the county and you move, 
and stay within the county, it could be that you're going to be voting for a different congressional candidate, right? a different legislative candidate. How does that get resolved? Well, they may send you to a different polling place. By the way, I, St. Louis is experimenting, I guess, right now with what's called centralized polling locations. As you know, if, you're, if you live in St. Louis County, there are dozens of house races that you, know, you might be able to vote in depending on where you live. And they're, experience, they're experimenting with centralized voting places. But yeah, they'll have to get you the right ballot. That's the real practical issue is they have to get you a ballot that has the candidates for which you are eligible to vote. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times, as a practical matter, that means they send you to another polling place. I happen to live in St. Louis County, and a few years ago they had a polling place that had multiple ballot styles, different uh, precincts voting right. at the same polling place. And the election judges made mistakes and gave the wrong ballots to the wrong people. And uh, that happened so pervasively that they had to redo that election in that area. Now in St. Louis County, it's, as Chuck mentioned, it's very, it's very neat. Uh, you can go to any polling place in the county and they pick your ID and uh, scan it, put it in where you live, and they print out your ballot right there. So, so it's, the computer does that. So it's yes. customized for you. It's customized right for you, wow. printed right there on demand. What, what do I have to take to the polling place to show people? Well, as of just a few days ago, uh, when the new law went into effect, you now need to take a photo ID, either issued by Missouri or the federal government with your picture on it. But you do have to present that if you want to vote a regular ballot. We've mentioned provisional ballots. A provisional ballot was the invention of the HAVA law in order to provide a way for everyone to be able to cast a ballot, even if your identity or, or location of where you live was in question, everyone can vote a provisional ballot. And if you don't have a photo ID now in Missouri, you can vote a provisional ballot. And so they give you, it's the same ballot, but they put it in an envelope that has an affidavit on the envelope that you sign saying that uh, you understand that your vote will not count unless your signature matches. So they do a signature examination. Uh, when you sign the ballot envelope, they compare your signature to uh, the, your voter registration record. And if those signatures match, then your vote still counts even though you don't have a photo ID. So that's a bit of a change. I mean, there, were, there have been times in Missouri when you could go in with a, like a water bill or that sort of thing. And the thing that I think people can get confused by Stephen mentioned that they send the election officials send you like a voter registration yes. card. A couple of years ago, when we were in the middle of photo ID back and forth, and do we need an ID, do we not, if the courts overruled it, I showed up at my polling place with my official, you know, county clerk, Chuck Hatfield, here's where you're registered, here's your precinct, and I handed it to them. And they said, you can't vote with that. You need photo ID. And I was a little tongue-in-cheek because I wanted to push. But I said, what do you mean? This is, it says, my county clerk's name on it. It has a seal. It has my name. It has my address. It matches the name exactly with your voting records. But I can't use this? No. You have to use photo ID. Now, they were wrong, by the way, Stephen. Right. But I went and got my photo ID and said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to Chris. But I think... There are probably people out there who, like me, think that if you show up with that non-photo printed little card, the official one they sent you, that you can vote, and it's not the case now. You need photo ID. You so can you, still vote a provisional. Provisional. A provisional. Yes. Right. And that, that vote will count 
And the way it counts is either you return that same day with a photo ID, and if you do that, they take it out of the provisional ballot envelope and it's counted just uh, like any other ballot. If you don't do that, then they that's when they compare your signature you know, after the ballots are submitted and then they, they count it if it matches your signature. So, but let me say, I recommend everybody show up with photo ID either the first time or, as Stephen said, come back with photo ID because I want to make sure everybody understands. If you don't and you vote that provisional ballot, now what you have is a person who is not trained in how to match signatures looking at your signature and comparing that to your voter registration. And it is fairly common that local election officials have different standards. They'll say, well, that's not your signature. Or in, a, you're in another county and they say, well, that is your signature. So you want to be safe and you want to make sure your vote gets counted. Show up with a photo ID or if they have you vote a provisional, come back with one. Well, I remember when they were debating this in the legislature. One of the big criticisms was that this was going to keep a lot of people who don't have government-issued photo IDs from voting. Sam in a nursing home. I haven't had a driver's license for years. What am I to do? I can't. I can't get out of my nursing home and go down to the courthouse and uh, or apply for a license. Uh, what What happens to these people? So I think the the legislature has really tried to address uh, those issues. That came up in the prior court case that we talk a lot about, the Weinshank case, which invalidated Missouri's prior photo ID requirement. And it did so largely on the basis that it cost money and took a lot of time for some folks to get an ID. And the IDs that were acceptable under that law are different than, than now. It was pretty much limited at that time to a driver's license or a passport. Now you can take any government-issued photo ID and uh, you can vote with that. But also the, the bill included a provision where the Secretary of State's office has to provide you with assistance to it to obtain any documents you may need to get a photo ID. And you can go into any driver's license office or fee office in the state and say, I don't have an ID, I want one to vote, and they have to give you a non-driver's license to be able to vote. We did a presentation earlier today and someone came up to me afterwards and and explain that their parent is in a nursing home and is not able to be transported at all, but you know, mentally is perfectly capable uh, of making a decision on voting. And I hadn't really thought through how that works. Have you? Yeah. Well, the Secretary of State has said, and you know, he's touring the state talking about this and the requirements. His office has a division that will help people obtain whatever documents they need. And, uh, you know, he can't guarantee if, if you have lived in another state and you have to get a birth certificate from that other state, how long that state will take to get it to you. But the Secretary of State's office will uh, do whatever it takes and pay those fees to help, to help you get that ID. And if you're in the nursing home and you, need, uh, you can't uh, vote in person on Election Day, county clerks and county uh, election authorities are very used to sending a bipartisan team of election judges to you. To help you vote. In most of these cases, when somebody is in a situation like the nursing home case you were just talking about, Chuck, I, I would assume if, if I was a county clerk, I might just keep a little camera around so I could go to a nursing home and take somebody's picture or get a document because most people, you can tell when they're over 21 by the time they're 70. And so couldn't there be some kind of a document that has somebody attest that this person looks older than 21? Is there a way to get around it that way? 
So, I, actually, Bob, I don't know all the practicalities of that. Yeah. You, you raise an interesting point, though, and Stephen and I talked about this in a session we did with a bunch of lawyers. In my experience, there is a little bit different approach to these things, depending on which jurisdiction you're in. So, if you're in a very small county with an elected county clerk who pretty much knows everybody, in my experience, having had to litigate these and talk to these folks, they're pretty helpful. They'll, they'll help you figure this out. They want to do it. Now, if you're in a larger jurisdiction where maybe you have appointed election authorities and you have, you know, a large bureaucracy around the process, it can be a little more difficult. I found generally that the election authorities want to be helpful. And to your point, they will try to figure something out. So if people are worried that they're going to have any issues, they should contact their local election authority. And most of the time they're very helpful. And if that doesn't work, there are lots and lots of bipartisan call centers that pop up nearer election days where they can contact lawyers uh, to try to help. Yeah, I once uh, litigated a case in Virginia. And in Virginia, as you're talking about, Bob, the, the local election authority did set up cameras, and they were authorized to do that by the statute there. And so when you went in, the county clerk would take your picture and produce an ID for you. But we had, uh, there was a witness in a, in a trial saying uh, they didn't have, they were telling us about, they're tell, telling the judge about how they didn't have an ID and we're worried and on election day we're worried that they wouldn't be able to vote and so they sent a tweet they just tweeted that they didn't have an id and didn't know if they would be able to vote that day and the secretary of state of virginia actually tweeted back to that person and said what do you need i i can help you vote wow for a lot of twitter people i guess have their picture on their account anyway <laughs> well yeah that might help that might do it what kind of help can somebody get if you're in a nursing home or whatever, and you need some help registering to vote, is it legal for somebody to register for you, or is it legal to uh, to ask somebody to go sign up for you? What What's the process in a case like that? So there's been a change on that recently, and, and folks who've done that before know that it used to be that relatives could help you with voter registration and even absentee balloting. And there, there is a little bit of a distinction between those two, but it used to be in Missouri that you could help your relatives vote absentee. There are some new requirements on voter registration. So on voter registration, the, the simple answer to your question is sure, people can help you register, people can encourage you to register, people could get you signed up. There are some new requirements about volunteers who register more than 10 people at a time. Um, and those folks need to be registered voters in Missouri. And they need to then give their name to the Secretary of State, let them know that they're gathering up registrations in, in bunches. And then absentee balloting is a little different now. I'm blanking on yes. <laughs> It's absentee is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> so you can't, am I right? We may have to edit some of this. Yeah. No I'll figure this out. You, you, right now you can't bring in somebody else's absentee. You can't ballot harvest anymore, right? That is correct, yes. So, so explain ballot harvesting. I know, I was like, I was like that sounds well, that like there should a, be a delicious that, meal involved. I've got the issue. Yeah. Yeah, that that, that kind of, takes, that kind of takes away one of the questions I was going to ask was ballot harvesting is an issue that's been discussed here. And, that's right, and we've had We've had some experience with that in Missouri. I live, in again, in St. Louis, and in 2016, we had a state representative uh, election overturned in St. Louis. Uh, it was a primary election because of absentee ballot fraud. One of the candidates uh, who ended up losing the election got a fair majority of the election day vote 
but then he lost 80% of the absentee ballot vote. And so that looked suspicious. They did some investigation. The Post-Dispatch got involved and uncovered some pretty pervasive absentee ballot fraud. So that has been on the mind of the legislature for a while. That election got overturned. And so now I, I, I believe the new statute has prohibited folks from soliciting an absentee ballot on your behalf. Suppose somebody doesn't speak English. Do you have to speak English to be able to vote? No, not at all. You can bring a family member with you to the polls, and that uh, person can assist you in the voting booth. And also, uh, if you're having any kind of trouble at the polling place, a bipartisan team of election judges can give you the assistance you need, whether it's whether you're handicapped or speak a different language. They can help you. Usually someone, I think, who speaks a different language might have a family member come with them to help them navigate the ballot, and that's permissible. You know, it used to come up a long time ago, what if you can't read, right? So there are, um, as Stephen says, there are provisions that would allow bipartisan teams to assist someone who needs help actually voting, right? You don't want somebody to vote for them, so that's why you have the bipartisan team there to make sure it's all fair. But, you know, the system's designed to allow those who have the ability to express their choice to do it, even if they're physically going to have some limitations, Do polling places have to be handicap accessible? I'm not sure they do. So polling places are in different locations. And, you know, generally, as we know, the Americans with Disabilities Act would make most public accommodations handicapped accessible. I don't know the specific answer to your question, Bob, but but my experience is that the clerks put the polling places in locations that are handicapped accessible, and they think about that. But here's how you solve the whole problem. I think Stephen mentioned it. It is common for... On election day, the judges to physically leave the polling place, come to the parking lot, come to the street with it's it's an iPad type device. They've got a name for it that I can't remember. An e poll book. E poll book, right? Mm-hmm. It is common for them to physically come to the car wow. or, uh, by the I side no of the idea. street. Oh, absolutely. Even in yeah. St. Louis County, they have parking places designated outside of the county headquarters where you park. They've got tables set up with election workers out there, and they come right to your car. So uh, even if you're not handicapped, if you're just sick that day, you can still go and get assistance right there at your car. Suppose I am out of town on election day. You mentioned absentee balloting. How does that work in Missouri? Right. So we have a big change with this new statute. So kind of as a, a legislative compromise... The Republicans, uh, I guess in exchange for getting photo voter ID included in the new law, they also included two weeks of no excuse early absentee voting. So if you remember a couple years ago with uh, COVID, a lot of folks went to the polling places early to absentee vote in, in person. And there was, just for that election, a choice that you could select uh, as an excuse to vote early. And, and that was that you either had COVID or you expected that you might get COVID. And so a lot of people took advantage of that and uh, went uh, and voted in person early last time. Well, I think it worked so well that they went ahead and codified it in the, in the law now. So two weeks before the election, uh, anyone can go vote early for any reason. You don't need an excuse to absentee vote. So maybe we should talk a little bit about absentee balloting because there are a couple ways, right? You can you can absentee vote by mail. 
you're sent an absentee ballot, you're sent an envelope that you fill out and explain why you're absentee voting and that you sign. You don't even have to leave your house. You just send that in. And there are different requirements for that envelope, though, including in some cases it has to be notarized. In other cases, you don't have to be notarized. There is a change to the new law about the signature that is still unresolved as to exactly what it means. So there had been an issue in the past, again, with some counties. In some counties, you send in your absentee ballot and you forget to sign it. I'm told a very common problem. And some counties would call you and say, hey, we got your absentee ballot. You didn't sign it. Is this yours? And then right. they would either take take it back out to you or you could send in another one that was properly signed and they would fix it. Other counties believed they could not do that. You can't mess around with that. And so those ballots were not counted because they were unsigned. There's a new provision in the law that says that an absentee ballot is deemed cast when received. And there is some debate about what that means. I think some people that passed it think it means that once that ballot is received at local election authority, they can't do anything else with it. And if it's unsigned, it was cast, but it's invalid, right? So they can't count it. Other people think what that means is, yes, it's there and it would count and you could still go back and fix it. So I think the bottom line on this is there are a couple ways to do it. You can do the mail-in, you can go in in person. Under the new laws, this is my personal recommendation, if you can, go in in person. There are things that can go wrong with your ballot. And if you want to make sure that your that your vote's going to be counted, it is best if you are capable of doing it to watch it slide into that machine and be counted. Did either of you ever hear of anybody being prosecuted for voting absentee but still being in town that day? <laughs> no. <laughs> I so, think that go ahead. Yeah, no, that I I've always thought that's a a fairly unenforceable provision of the law. Certainly I've I've voted uh, absentee because I expected to be out of the out of the jurisdiction on election day. Did they ever record what the excuses given were? Is there like a top 10 list somewhere of the most entertaining <laughs> excuses for absentee balloting? Well, I've not seen that. You know, I as a little bit of an experiment during COVID when we were in a lawsuit about absentee balloting, I went and stood at the window in the Cole County Clerk's Office and watched people come in and vote absentee. And first of all, they will say, why do you want to vote absentee? And the poor clerk would get a very long explanation about the type of surgery someone was going to be having. Uh, and then they would say, okay, you plan to be sick. But some people would come in and say, I don't want to hassle with it on election day. Not a valid excuse. And so the clerks would kind of, well... You know, the options are, <laughs> are you going to be out of town? Are you, gonna, and then, yeah. you know, I don't know anyone that's been prosecuted for that, but certainly very often, as Chuck says, people come in and they do not provide one of the acceptable excuses. And then you have the county clerk saying, well, and sometimes I've heard of very rigid county clerks say, well, you can't vote because that's not a valid excuse. Well, and I voted absentee once. They didn't even ask me what my excuse was. Yeah. They checked it for me, planned to be out of town. I didn't say and that was fine, but it doesn't matter anymore because, as Stephen says, we're in no excuse uh, absentee ballot. So you don't have to come up with an excuse anymore. When, when they asked us, when we, my wife and I voted during the COVID thing, uh, why we're voting absentee, we basically said our age because we fall in that age category where we're most susceptible to COVID. Right. And this was before the shots. 
And so that was all we had to say. And that pretty well covered all the ground. So it was a general thing. But I've often wondered if I really wanted to play games, why I couldn't get in my car and drive outside the city limits and then come back and say, okay, I was out of town that day. Well, we, we talked about this in an earlier session, Judge. During the last election, there was this, this challenge about, you know, how do you vote absentee? And, and again, this law has changed. But Chief Judge Paul Wilson wrote a, a concurring opinion, right, which is when a judge says, I agree with the results for maybe different reasons. And Judge Wilson pointed out that the way our old law was written, it uses the word expect over and over again. Do you expect to be ill on election day? Because we don't know. Do you expect to be out of town on election day? And so during that time, I advised most of my friends, if you're talking about going to vote 30 days before an election, do you expect to have COVID? It's up to you. It's a subjective what do you think? And that's what Judge Wilson said. Judge Wilson said it's completely subjective. If you believe, you expect you're going to be sick or out of town, you can go vote. And he encouraged people that want to do absentee balloting to educate the voters about that. But luckily, we don't have to go through those mental gymnastics now. Do they anticipate this change will increase voter turnout? Uh, it's hard to say. I, I would think it, it would as it becomes more convenient for people to vote. One of the challenges we're going to have to perhaps deal with on this new change is the number of polling places. So the way we're set up now, at least in rural counties, they're not opening remote stations. So you have to go to a centralized location to do the absentee balloting. And some of the election authorities like Boone County set up a remote location and, and then you get into the expanded hours issue as well. So one of the things I'll have to figure out is if people do start using this, do we actually have the capacity, the infrastructure, uh, you know, to handle it? I think in St. Louis County, they, they do set up remote locations. Yes, absolutely. They have two or three offices. Where are we on ballot boxes? Boxes out of the street where people can deposit their ballots. So the new law prohibits them. I'd never really noticed them in Missouri before, except in the election authority's office. Actually, within their office, there would sometimes be a box sitting there that you could come in and put your ballot in. But as as far as I remember, we haven't uh, used them in Missouri. But there was uh, some controversy with them in other states this past election. So the legislature proactively, I guess, prohibited their use in Missouri. You know, for me, I I feel grateful in that I find voting to be a very easy process for me. I live just a few blocks away from my polling place. There, I think the longest I've ever had to wait was five minutes. Um, is that experience true in Missouri for the majority of voters? Or are there ongoing challenges and struggles that are unique to each location? Well, so there are pockets of Missouri where your experience would be different. Um, the lines are much longer. Um, those tend to be in the larger jurisdictions. So that historically, that's been the case. I mean, you've had to wait, you know, in St. Louis at times, there have been reports of hour-long lines, which obviously folks don't like to wait that long to vote. I think the St. Louis County thing is going to be really interesting, and, and I'll be interested to hear Stephen's take as a St. Louis County resident, because one of the advantages to this, what do they call it? It's not centralized. It's decentralized voting. It's I don't know the term for it, but you can go to any polling place. Now, the, the, the flip side of that is that they've reduced the number of polling places in the county. So actually, my weight has increased a little bit because there are more people voting at my polling place. But it's important to remember, both before this new law was passed 
and after, it hasn't changed. If you arrive by the time the polls close, you get to vote, even if there's a long line. If you are there by seven o'clock when the polls close, no matter how long it takes for all of the voters in line to vote, you can vote. And the Supreme Court and lower courts have all said that there is a degree of inconvenience and burden associated with voting, and it's just always been that way. And the courts have been willing to allow that so long as the state has a compelling interest. And the courts have said the state does have a compelling interest in protecting the integrity of its elections. So unfortunately, you may have to um, wait in a line, but that's just part of the, the process. Well, and, and so hopefully with some of these changes, being able to vote outside of election day, have an extended absentee balloting, and I'm optimistic about the universal voting idea that, for, so for example, I always vote either before eight or after five, you know, and so I, because I got to get to my polling place. One of the ideas around, I think, St. Louis County is, you know, if you work, you know, you work in Clayton, but you live in Webster Groves, uh, you can go vote where on you your work lunch hour. on yeah. your lunch hour during the day, take a quick break and go vote. And so I'm optimistic that it'll help a little bit with some of the lines. We'll, we'll have to wait and see. I am too. I know I'm going to be voting on the first day of early voting every year and getting it done. Right. Now, we've talked a lot in this program about St. Louis County, but is what you've been saying about St. Louis County pretty much applicable to other metropolitan counties? I'm thinking across the state of Jackson County and Kansas City. Is it pretty much the same in those areas too? I don't, I haven't been in contact recently with election board in Kansas City and Jackson County, so I don't know if they've implemented the same system, but they certainly could. I don't think they have yet. Some of the problems we've talked about in terms of, you know, long lines, mm -hmm. for example, those those tend to be a problem in the, in the larger counties. Yeah. Right? I'm also optimistic, like Chuck is, that this will prove to be a good thing and be adopted by other counties. There are a lot of topics that we could be talking about today on have to do with elections. We could be talking about who pays for the elections or the campaign finance stuff or petition campaigns and how they're handled and other election issues that uh, maybe we'll have to talk about at some other program because there's, the whole thing of being a citizen and casting a vote involves more than just going and placing an X or a mark on a ballot. There's a lot of stuff that goes on before and during an election that needs to be looked at, too. So maybe we'll have you guys back for another another round of discussions Absolutely. on some of these things. Before we have them go, I'd love to ask each of you, what rights do you believe voters do not understand as well as they should? What rights do voters not understand as well as they should? Or what's your best advice to voters? You got, you, you got it? I like to think of it as what what responsibilities voters have. Now, we talk a lot about the fundamental right to vote. It's very important to us, always has been in America. I think it's also fundamentally important to take the responsibility to, to be an informed voter and to vote often, to take that responsibility and right seriously and make sure you safeguard that and exercise it. Well said. So let me let me slightly take a counterpoint. You have a right to vote even if you're uninformed. And it's always interesting to me. I have relatives who will say, well, I don't want to vote. I don't really know, you know, who to vote for. Well, get informed. I mean, I, I agree it's not a good idea to be an uninformed voter, but, but get yourself informed and go vote. Just, just because you haven't voted before or because you're not really familiar with, you know, the issues, you don't you know, you don't know exactly how Congress works, 
that's okay. You're still allowed to participate, you know, and to go vote. I think some of the things we've talked about right now are going to be really important that voters understand. The idea that you can go in and vote early, for want of a better term, that's a new concept. People don't really think about that. They forget the elections coming up. Those of us, you know, who are in the the news game or the lawyer game, we know, hey, there's an election. It's the second Tuesday in November. Most people don't realize there's an election until it's right on top of them. Especially if it's not a presidential election. That's right. And so they may not even realize an election's coming up until they get to the day of the election. And so, you know, knowing that elections are coming, uh, knowing that they have the right to go in and, and cast an absentee ballot, and knowing some of the things we've talked about here, that you've got a right to vote, even if you don't speak English, even if you're not a taxpayer. You know, even if you can't make it to the polls. Even if you can't make it to the polls. That's right. So, you know, you, you should exercise that right. Yeah, our free right to vote is one of the things that set this country apart from so many other countries in the world. Be able to vote freely and the way you want to vote. And so it's important that we have this discussion today. And I want to thank both of you for, for being with us. This edition of Is It Legal 2, which is a special production of the Missouri Bar. And we want to thank Steve Davis and Chuck Hatfield for exploring election laws with us today. We think that uh, people who hear this are probably going to go to the polls in November are much better informed on, on their rights and their privileges of the, of the ballot. And not just November, often, right? Right, yeah. right. I hope so. There are some resources you might want to check out if you want to explore the topic more. Just go to Missouri Lawyers Help. That's all one word. MissouriLawyersHelp.org. You can find an array of other information on various legal topics at the same site, as well as our full list of podcast episodes. The site provides information that will help you better understand the law, because the more you know about the law, the better decisions you can make for your life, your family, and your finances. Again, that's MissouriLawyersHelp.org. Nothing further, Your Honor. You've been listening to Is It Legal 2, a regular look at our legal system and you. It's a special production of the Missouri Bar. I'm Bob Pretty. And I'm Farah Fight. Thanks for being with us. Opinions and positions stated by guests and presenters in the Is It Legal 2 podcast are those of the guests and presenters and not necessarily those of the Missouri Bar. This program is intended as information for lawyers and citizens of Missouri in conjunction with other research they deem necessary in the exercise of their independent judgment.